The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, May 14th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. All right, as everybody's getting settled, go ahead and grab your Bible. Make your way to the New Testament book of Galatians. We are going to be in our second week of our walk through the book of Galatians, and I can't tell you right now how long it's going to take, so just get comfortable because we're going to be there for a while. And um, as you're getting there, let me pray for our time together in God's Word. Father, we thank you again for the rich privilege that is ours because of your grace to be able to gather together and and hear from you. Uh, Lord, we know that the words that we have in front of us are nothing less than your living and active Word meant to transform us in the deepest parts of our hearts and souls. So this morning we ask that you would do that miracle by your Holy Spirit that only you can do. Give us ears to hear you this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I like to think um, that in general, as a parent, I am particularly level-headed most of the time, and that the approach with our kids that my wife and I have taken for the most part of trying to be as open and communicative and conversational as possible um, has indeed been fruitful for our family. Um, It would not be unusual for us to go somewhere or for me to take the kids somewhere and for us to pull into a place like Target and before we get out of the car for, for me to say something sounding similar to, so as we get out of the car, kids, what do you think a wise decision would be as we step out of the car? Do you think it would be a wise decision when dad opens the doors for you to jump out and start running towards the store? No? Okay. What would a wise decision be? Standing by the car and waiting. Okay, great. See, now all of our kids can get themselves unbuckled and do all that stuff themselves. So we try to talk to them. That's sensible. Do you understand why it's wise to do something like that? Well, a few years ago, dad had all three kids. And we had gone to run a few errands. And we were meeting a family member. We were meeting them over at a post office over off Jank Road, and this is where we would meet, and they would gather the kids, and the kids would go spend time with a family member, and at that point, not all of my kids could unbuckle themselves, so we park, and I have the conversation that is had 10,000 times in the car in our family about what are we going to do in such places like this, and so as the doors open and my children who can get out begin to get out, I begin to unbuckle the one that can't get herself out of the seat. And I noticed in a moment, the family members that we were meeting were right across the way from where I was. And they were standing outside their car, waving and saying things to the kids as I was getting them out of the car. And while I was unbuckling the one that could not get herself out of the car, I noticed a flash go behind me. And as the flash scooted off behind me, something she could not see by virtue of her stature, but I could see, was that coming our way in that parking lot was a big giant F-250. That F-250 was about one and a half cars from our minivan there in the parking lot. And one of my children, who will remain nameless, shot behind me full speed out towards our family that was waving and yelling at them in the middle of this parking lot. And in that moment, I like to again think that I'm a generally level-headed person. But there was something tremendous at stake. And... There really wasn't time for a conversation. I had one moment to do one thing. Now, there's no record and report of what actually happened. There may or may not have been hair lost. There may or may not have been a jacket torn. But to the best of my ability, I made one sweeping move. 
I heard the F-250 slam on its brakes and begin to screech its way towards our van, and I grabbed by any means necessary whatever I could grab of the flash going behind me and pulled it with whatever energy I had in me back towards me, and there may or may not have been feet that came over the head (laughs) on the way back towards me. Again, there's no record of what actually happened. Here's the thing, there were people all around. It's like 3 o'clock in the middle of a weekday afternoon at a post office. I honestly, to this day, still could care less how ugly it looked. Could care less what anyone in that parking lot thought about me as a father. Something, Something far more valuable than their opinion of me was at stake in that moment as one of my children, who will remain nameless, decided to run straight across the parking lot into the oncoming grill of an enormous pickup truck. Sometimes there are some things at stake that are more important than what people might think about you, than what people might say about you. And I tell you the story because if you can imagine that moment when I realized I had one instinct, I had one second, I had one opportunity to do something about what was going to happen or, or we would have a very different day today. If you can begin to, to capture in your mind that, that mood that can begin to overwhelm you when you find yourself in a situation like that, then you'll begin to understand the mood and the tenor of the letter that Paul writes to the church in Galatia. There is a, a spiritual F-250 on a collision course with this young church. And Paul, who, who loves them the way that I would love my own children, he has to respond. He has to do something. The time for pleasantries, the time for conversation, the time for back and forth questions of wisdom is past. There's something far more important at stake. There's something of infinite importance at stake. This is the mood of the book of Galatians. And this morning, as we continue in the letter, we're going to get a sense of what it is that's actually at stake in this letter that causes Paul to speak to these people the way that he speaks to them. So if you've got your Bibles open, Galatians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 6 this morning. And here's what I I would ask you to do. And I know I'm stepping into touchy waters here by asking you to do this, but I want you to grab a Bible and I know lots of you like to use your phones and, and, your, and your iPads. If that's what you choose to use, put it in airplane mode. Because I'm going to ask you to look at it for a little while, and there's no way humanly possible you're going to be able to keep yourself from the distractions that come to you in this. All right? In fact, we're going to have it on a screen up here. So if you just want to turn it off and look up here, that's fine. But grab one of your Bibles, and, and I want you to look down at Ephesians chapter, I mean, excuse me, Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 6. And as we read God's word, there is a a way that we can discern what is at the heart of a passage of the Bible by by watching for things. And one of the things that we can watch for is the way that writers repeat certain words and phrases. So as we read together this morning, I'm going to guide you in how to recognize what is at stake and what is at the heart of what Paul is saying here. So Galatians chapter 1 verse 6, the apostle Paul writes to the church and He says, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different 
gospel. Now, if you've got a Bible in front of you, I want you to underline that word gospel right there. Verse 7, not that there is another, and some of your translations will say gospel. That is the word that is there in the Greek. Some of your translations will say another one, but you can underline that right there because it's speaking of the gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort. What's the next thing? The, yeah, go ahead and underline that one. The gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a, man, you catching a repetition here? A gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. For now, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. What do you think is at the heart of what the Apostle Paul is dealing with when he sits down to write the letter to this young church in Galatia? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. The book of Galatians is about the gospel. What's at stake ultimately in what the Apostle Paul is dealing with in the life of this church? It is the gospel. The gospel is the central message of Christianity. The Apostle Paul has already preached the gospel to them in one sentence in the opening of this letter, reminding them that grace and peace with God are theirs through the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for their sins to deliver them not only from the judgment that is due to them from their sins, but from the power of their sins in this present evil age. And all of that was God's plan of love for them before the foundations of the earth. There's something infinitely more valuable at stake here in the church. And it's gotten the Apostle Paul worked up. Now let's look at what he's saying here and see if we can't begin to expose what's going on and why he finds what's happening in this church, in particular with the gospel, so important. First notice, look at verse 7. We're going to pick it apart and put it back together. Look at verse 7. Paul says, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, notice here, the church that he's writing to, the apostle Paul says that something is happening that is troubling them. The church is being troubled right now. We've not yet settled on a great way to communicate in English what Paul is saying right there. So some of your translations might use different words. But underneath whatever word they use is a word that they would have used back then in Greek that means to shake violently. To agitate violently. Again, picture, like we talked about last week, that ship out at sea. That ship facing an immense storm coming across the sea, being shaken and tossed and turned violently by the storm, in danger of being literally swept away by it. Right now, this church that Paul is writing to is being shaken violently to the edge of destruction. There are some, Paul says, some people 
a collection as we've talked about briefly and we'll talk about more specifically in the weeks to come. There are some teachers that have come into this church, into this region as the Apostle Paul moved out. And here's the thing about these teachers and Paul's going to get more specific about them later on in the letter so I'm trying to leave some to the imagination but these teachers have come into this region and begun to be a part of these churches and here's the thing, they sound a lot like Paul. These aren't teachers coming in with a completely different region from another uh, religion from another part of the world. These are people who most likely were part or at least connected to the church in Jerusalem. They came into this region saying things very similar to what the Apostle Paul would have said. Yes, God loves you. Yes, Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He is the Messiah, the chosen one of Israel. He is the one who died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the dead. Yes and amen. But that's where their similarity with Paul ended. There was a nuance to their message. And their nuance was a distortion, Paul said of the gospel of Christ. It's always been said to the church that the greatest danger for the church really doesn't come from outside the church. It it comes from inside the church. And when Paul talks about the danger, what's happening to God's people, that it's causing them to be shaken, troubled, agitated to the point of destruction, he's talking about something that's coming from the inside. And if we can catch in the time that we've got together this morning, what Paul is saying right here. If we can understand what he is saying right here in this verse, in this phrase, the doors to the rest of the letter will open wide for us this morning. See, when you and I think about something being distorted, we generally in our mind think about something like a carnival mirror, Something taking the the image or the reflection of an original and twisting it and turning it to the point where you can kind of recognize it, but, but not quite. The word that's used right here that we translate distort, some of your Bibles will translate pervert or twist, it quite literally means to reverse. It would have been used in other portions of literature in that day to reference something akin to putting the cart before the horse, taking what's in the back and putting it in the front, taking what's in the front and putting it in the back. It literally means to reverse something. Paul is saying that you are so agitated, disturbed, you're on the edge of being shaken to the point of destruction because someone's come in and reversed the gospel. Someone's come in and and they've taken what's meant to be in the front and they've put it in the back. They're causing the effect of the gospel to be seen as the cause of the gospel. They're confusing the fruit of the gospel for the roots of the gospel. Let me try to explain this a little more because again, if you can understand what's happening in this church, the rest of the book will open wide for you. Let me me do it this way. I'm going to ask you a question. Does God love you, and as a result, therefore, you love him and live a godly life? Or do you come to God and promise to lead a godly life, and as a result of your promise and sincerity, God therefore loves you? Did you catch the question? Does God love you, 
And as a result of God's love for you, you then love him in return and lead a godly life or do you come to God and promise with all sincerity to lead the best godly life you can and as a result of your promise and sincerity, God then in return loves you? Which do you think it is? I mean, for most of you, I would assume that right now in your minds, you're saying, well, that's a pretty easy question. That's kind of a remedial question. But rather than thinking about it with your minds, I would encourage you to allow God to examine the way you actually live. You see, the logic of the gospel is the order in which the gospel operates. The logic of the gospel is the order in which the gospel operates. There is an order to it. Paul is so worked up. Paul is on the edge of such frustration. Paul finds himself emotionally in a very similar spot that I found myself that day in that parking lot because someone has come into the people that he loves and has reversed the order of the gospel. The gospel is not just about particular aspects of content. There is a logic to how it actually works. There's a cause and there's an effect. And getting those reversed literally changes how you see everything. You see, these teachers who sounded a lot like Paul, who knew people that Paul knew, who probably belonged in some way, shape, form, or fashion to the church in Jerusalem, they were literally shaking the church to the edge of destruction because they were reversing the gospel. Listen, friends, that's no minor thing. Let's let's take a few minutes that we have this morning to, to think about this reversal because even in our day and age, this may very well be the greatest weapon of the enemy of God's people and God's glory. It would not be unfamiliar. It would not be uncommon. It it would not be strange in our day and age for, for you to come across someone who may say something like this, you're free to say that you have indeed been born again by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Praise Him. We're happy for you. Just as you live your life, be careful not to say that good and sincere people who don't share your belief in Jesus can't know God and be saved either. That would not be uncommon to hear, would it? Great. We celebrate that God has saved you through faith in Jesus. Just just be careful not to make anybody else who lives a good and sincere life feel like that's the only way that they could ever know God. Do you see the switch? The cause of your salvation, the cause of your hope, It's not in God saving you through the sacrifice of his son in your place for your sins. It's your best sincere effort to be good. Don't make people who are doing their best to be good feel like they can't know God because of that. No one writes better about this these days than Tim Keller, and many of you are familiar with Keller. Keller, in in one of his books, was recording a conversation that he had had with someone about this very thing, and And this is what he said. I'm quoting him. Whenever somebody says, don't you see all the good people in the world who who aren't Christians? Certainly they can come to God too, just like you. 
Keller says, my general response to people who would talk to me about this is, simp- is, is saying something like this. Well, there's only one problem with that. What about all of us bad people? How are we going to get to know God? At that point, they always laugh, Keller says. They always look at me and they say, well, you're a pastor. And when they say something like that, I get very upset and agitated. I just want to look at them in the eyes and I want to say, you don't know my heart. You don't know what I'm capable of. How dare you throw me into despair by saying, Jesus, that's great. But the important thing is you're good. And because you're good and you try hard, God will accept you. It's a reversal. It's a reversal of the gospel. And it ceases to be good news. But here's the thing. There is what you can call a conservative version of this too. Probably something far more akin to what you and I are familiar with and what you and I deal with or struggle with on a daily basis. Do you know what that sounds like? If you're really good and really sorry, and if you live the right kind of life, and then whoever begins to think about this or teach this way has a very clear definition of what that kind of life is. The kind of things you do and the kinds of things you don't do. The kind of things you avoid and the kind of things you connect yourself with. The words you say and the words you don't say. The clothes you wear and the clothes you don't wear the people you spend time with, the people you don't spend time with. A very clear definition of of what that life looks like. If you are really good, you're really sorry, and you live the right kind of life, you can be sure that God will then love you. But again, the gospel has been reversed. Instead of because I'm accepted by God through Christ, I then live a life of obedience born from gratitude that glorifies Him. It gets distorted. Because I'm following all the right rules, then God will love me. And the message of good news that God has for His people gets reversed. One message is motivated by gratitude for God's grace. You know what the other is motivated by? And you're probably far more intimately familiar with this one it's motivated by fear of rejection see in this other distortion of the gospel this other reversal of the gospel if I'm really good and I'm really sorry and I follow all the right rules I can be sure that God will love me how do you ever know that you've ever kept enough rules how do you know that you've kept all the right rules how do you know that you've repented enough how do you know you're sorry enough how do you know you're really trying as hard as you truly can How do you ever really know? Well, you don't. If you've grown up in the church, this is what is underneath the epidemic of youth rededications. It wasn't a transformed life. It was a distorted gospel. If you do all of these things the right way hard enough, then you can know that God indeed accepts you and loves you, but how do you ever know? Go somewhere else and the rules are different. There was a historian and a theologian writing about this very thing for the church in America back in the 70s. His name was Richard Loveless. He was a professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. So all the guys that you listen to on podcasts now that are in their 50s and 60s, he was their professor in seminary, right? So thinking about this very thing in a fantastic book called The Dynamics of Spiritual Life, Richard Loveless says this about the church and this distortion of the gospel. In our day-to-day existence... 
they, and when he says they, he's referring to what I'm talking about here in followers of Christ who have reversed the gospel, believing this other more conservative distortion that there's a, a system of rules that we have to obey, and as we obey them, we'll know then that God loves us. Loveless says those who are falling, let's say, to this distortion, they rely on what theologians call their sanctification, their growing, changing, transforming life, the fruit of the gospel. They rely on the fruit, their sanctification, as the foundation for their justification, their right standing before God. Your assurance of your acceptance before God, your standing before God, the forgiveness that is yours before God, in this distortion, your assurance of that is built not simply on what God has done for you in Christ on the cross, but on how you are living in response to it. And Loveless says, drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity and from their past experience of conversion, from their recent religious performance, or from the relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts, accepts them in Jesus, apart from their spiritual achievements, are subconsciously, radically insecure people. This is going to get personal. Much less secure than even non-Christians. Why? Because they have too much light to rest easily under the constant bulletins they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness of God and the righteousness they're supposed to have. Their insecurity shows itself in pride. A fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and a defensive criticism of others. Think that sounds like the church sometimes? See if it doesn't get more personal. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles, other races, and in order to bolster their own security and discharge their own suppressed anger. They cling desperately to legal, pharisaical righteousness, but inside burn with envy, jealousy, and other branches on the tree of sin begin to grow out of their fundamental insecurity. Because in the heart, the gospel has been reversed, distorted. There's a tremendous amount of insecurity, Loveless says, a tremendous amount of defensive criticism of others, a tremendous amount of legalism, of condescension, of condemning attitudes towards anybody who isn't right on everything, from baptism to government to Christian conduct to tongues in the church or against tongues. This distortion leaves God's people at heart, he says, down on everybody. Why? Because the gospel's been reversed. What is meant to have been the fruit of the gospel, what theologians call your sanctification, your growing in Christ's likeness reflected in the life you live here on this earth, has become the foundation for you and heart of your assurance and acceptance before God rather than simply what God has done for you on the cross through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's no minor thing. And what Paul is going to say to the church is that this other gospel, this distortion of the gospel, it's no gospel at all. It ceases being good news. 
You can't tweak the gospel. Take the fruit and stick it back in the front. You can't take what's in the back and put it in the front and what's in the front and put it in the back and not fundamentally, radically change the character of the gospel. What Paul is going to argue for is the anchor that he is laying in the hearts of the church to hold them fast in the midst of all these distortions, and that's simply this. There is no other gospel. There is only one true message of good news, and any distortion or reversal of that message is no good news at all. It's no minor thing. Paul looks at the church knowing what's happening, knowing that they're being shaken to the edge of destruction because someone has come in and told them a lie about God. And they're beginning to believe the lie about God and beginning to reverse the good news of the gospel. That's why Paul will write in verse 6, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to what your Bibles will say there is a different gospel. The word there for different is the word heteros. Heteros means of another nature, something of an entirely different nature. Paul says you are turning to a heteros gospel, a heteros message, a message that is of an entirely different nature than the one that God has proclaimed to you through his son. And then he says in verse 7, not that there actually is another one. There isn't another one. And there he uses a word that means of the same nature. Paul is saying that what you are beginning to believe and what these people are telling you, though it may sound like me, it's of a message that's of an entirely different nature than the gospel. Not that there actually is any other message that's of the same nature of the gospel. There's only one. One. And to distort it, to pervert it, to reverse it, to do anything to it is to make it no gospel at all. They're teaching the church something that simply isn't true about God. And that changes everything. And thinking about what's at stake, Martin Luther, again, writing his commentary on the book of Galatians, Luther says there is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and what we call works righteousness. There's no other alternative to Christian righteousness but works righteousness. If you do not build your confidence on the work of God in Christ, if what is at the front of the gospel and the way the gospel works itself out and what you build your confidence and assurance upon is not what God has done for you in the work of Christ, you must then build your confidence on your own effort. There's no other option. You can't simply just distort the message a little bit. What Paul is saying is that there is no other way to be right with God apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sincerity, effort, morality, one pastor has said may keep you out of jail, but it won't keep you out of hell. There is no other way to be right with God apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If your best effort 
If your morality and your sincerity behind your best effort were enough to make you right in the eyes of the one true holy God, then you have absolutely made a mockery of the cross of Christ. This is what these teachers were doing. They were saying you needed to live a particular way. One commentator will say you need to finish by the effort of Moses what Christ started on the cross. To say that you can simply try hard and be good and ultimately in the end that's enough does violence to the sacrifice of the Son of God in your place for your sin. I mean, if you just give yourself a moment at some point this week to consider the staggering nature of your own sin, I would dare bet that maybe you would give a little more pause before you might complain that there's only one way to be made right with God and with Him for all eternity, and you, you might begin to stand in awe that in his grace he has made any way possible at all. At all. The glory of God and the salvation of sinners is at stake in the message of the gospel. Do you see why Paul, recognizing what's happening in this church, can begin to get so worked up? At stake is nothing less than the eternal salvation of those that he has loved. You reverse the gospel, you have no gospel at all. It's not capable of saving you. At stake is the glory of God in Christ. His sacrifice in your place for your sins to rescue you, to redeem you, to make you right before God. Paul's not concerned about his reputation. What's at stake is your salvation. What's at stake is God's glory. And there couldn't be anything more important to Paul. And so as you, as you begin to sense what's really going on, what's, what's really on the table here, what's really at stake in getting this thing right, you can begin to understand why Paul responds to the church the way he does. You can begin to understand why he says, in hearing about this, I'm so astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to something that isn't even another message of good news. And if you think about Paul writing this letter, not welcoming them, not saying it's so good to hear about you again, I've heard of all the great things you're doing, just straight into, I'm astonished that you're doing this, just think for a minute. He doesn't say that to any other church he writes to. And if you're familiar with Paul and some of the situations he's been in, if you think about the letters, if you're familiar with the New Testament, the letters that he's written to the church in Corinth, think about some of the things he dealt with in that church. Perversion so great, he said, that even the Gentile believers would be ashamed. God's people coming together like this to worship and taking the Lord's Supper and believers being so selfish and so exclusionary that they're making themselves drunk on the Lord's Supper and not allowing the poor to come and take it. Think about all the things he's dealt with with the church. And when he writes them, he's like, it's so good to hear about you. I love you so much. 
I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and all these good things that are coming to you. Let me, let me write about you to some of these things. But he considers this. And in thinking about what's happening here, Paul finds himself astonished. Why? Because God's people are on the edge of deserting the one who called them in the grace of Christ. That's a serious charge. That desertion, that's a good translation. The word behind that is the word they would have used maybe for a soldier who changed sides in the middle of a battle. It's treason. Paul literally says they're, they're on the verge of becoming turncoats. They're literally turning, not on content, not on an idea, not on particular aspects of a message. They're turning from someone to something else entirely. John Stott, he said, don't begin for a moment to fall prey to the notion that a concern for doctrine is impersonal. The gospel is the very personal news of God's very personal call to you. If you turn to a different gospel, you're not turning away from content, you're not turning away from ideas, you're not turning away from words, you're turning away from God. And that is nothing other than astonishing. They were turning from the one who had called them to himself, who had punished their sin on his son in their place. The whole idea that they could then keep God and turn to a different gospel is not possible at all. They're turning away from the one who has called them and loved them in his son. They're committing treason on him and turning to something that is not good news. And did you catch, and go back and read it really slowly this week, that what astonished Paul was not that someone would distort the gospel. I'm never astonished when I hear that someone has taken the message of the gospel and added something else to it. I'm not surprised that in a sinful world where there is an enemy that is at loose seeking to distort the message of God's grace in his son that it gets distorted. What Paul is astonished by is that God's people would so quickly turn from God to a lie. This is no game that they're playing. Again, Luther, in thinking about this, Luther rightly warned the church that there is a clear and present danger that the devil may take away from us the pure doctrine of faith in Christ and substitute for it the doctrine of our own work and human tradition. It's very necessary, Luther said, therefore, that this doctrine of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ be continually read and heard in the public gathering of God's people. The good news of the gospel, the good news of grace and peace to you from the mind and will and intention and heart of God through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ, in your place for your sin must be preached, must be believed, must be lived. Otherwise, it will be lost. There is no other gospel 
Which is why in thinking about those who have come and have begun to shake the church, Paul will say this to God's people. Even, look at verse 8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we have already preached to you, let him be accursed. Literally, let the judgment of God come to him. Paul's not just angry. He's not just popping off with the pen. He's so intent and so serious about what he's saying, he's going to repeat it. Verse 9, as I have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. This is the seriousness of the gospel. Another writer would say the devil disturbs the church as much by error as he does by evil. And don't go too quickly through this thinking that this is just a defensive man who's being angry about what people are saying about him. What Paul is concerned about first and foremost is the gospel because what's at stake is the glory of Christ and the salvation of sinners. Paul's using intentionally hyperbolic language. If anyone, including myself, if anyone, even an angel, We're to try to speak to you any other gospel. We're to try to say that in any way, shape, form, or fashion, it's possible to reverse or distort this gospel. Let the judgment of God come to him. It's that serious. People studying Galatians, they don't often find it, but Eugene Peterson, some of you are familiar with him, wrote a fantastic little commentary in the book of Galatians like only he can. I mean, he uses phrases and words that, the re- that I think people hide it because they just feel so bad they can't do it. And it's a little. And he can say so much in like two pages, you, you know, it takes me 10. But I found it in the library. Peterson, I want you to hear this. He says, it is indeed a wicked thing to tell people lies about God. Now Listen. If we come to believe the wrong things about God, we will inevitably believe the wrong things about ourselves, and our life will be lived in distortion. Paul is simply not tolerant when people he loves are being told lies about God because he knows that such lives will reduce their life, impair their vitality of the spirit, and imprison them in old guilts and cripple them with anxiety and fears. This is what is at stake in the logic and centrality of the gospel. To distort the gospel, to reverse the gospel, is to send sinners in peril for eternity. And it's to assault the glory of God. To add even one personal nuance to the gospel is to say that the death of the Son of God is insufficient to save. Nothing, nothing could be more serious and deadly to sinful men and women than to believe that the sacrifice of Jesus in your place for your sins is in some way insufficient for your salvation, for your acceptance before God, 
And Paul simply won't tolerate it. When someone adds some work or some requirement or begins to communicate and believe that something more is needed to truly, as Peterson would later say, have the smile of God, they're doing nothing less than leading people astray and are worthy then, worthy then of the curse. There is so much at stake with the gospel. Luther said this is not preaching that gains favor from men and women in the world. For the world finds nothing more irritating and and intolerable than hearing its own wisdom and righteousness and religion and power condemned. If we denounce men and all their effort, it's inevitable that we will quickly quickly encounter bitter, bitter hatred, persecution, condemnation, and maybe even execution. And this is what Paul understands, which is why you find this interesting end to the section in verse 10. When Paul says, am I, am I now seeking the approval of man or, or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Paul knew that this message is not a, a message that gains favor from men and women in the world. Paul knew very intimately prior to his encounter with Christ as a Pharisee of Pharisees what it was to spend yourself in trying to keep up appearances. Go read Philippians chapter 3 sometime this week. Paul lived his life with all of his confidence, not on what God had done for him in Christ, but on his circumcision, on his ethnicity, on his family connections, on his cultural background. Especially, he built his confidence on the way he kept the law. Paul, of all people, knew what it was like to build your life on a distortion of what you believed to be was good news. And he wasn't going to stand for it. He wasn't going to allow God's people to live their life on a reversed gospel. So Paul knew that with the life he had and the breath that God had given him, he had to in every way and in every case oppose any kind of distortion with all of his might, whether it pleased people or not. Because the glory of Christ and the salvation of sinners is at stake. Friends, there is, there is no other gospel. There is only one true gospel. There is only one foundation on which our lives can be built that doesn't leave us shaken, agitated to the point of destruction. Rather, it rescues us and hides us away in the perfect, stable, eternal righteousness of Christ. As we prepare as God's people to respond to God's word, I want you to hear this. Consider what the one true gospel actually says. It doesn't tell us what we have to do to please God. Instead, it announces that God is already pleased with us through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. God is as pleased with us as he is his own son. Friends, this is what we are going to remember and celebrate in just a moment 
as we receive communion together. Those of you that are followers of Christ will take a piece of bread and remember the body of Jesus broken in your place for your sins. You'll dip it in that chalice of juice, remembering the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness and cleansing of your sins. We are proclaiming our confidence in the one and only true gospel, the simplicity of which staggers you when you think about it. Our confidence can be built and established upon nothing less, the song says, than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And as you come and remember and celebrate and proclaim your confidence in what God has done for you through his son, remember this, the one true gospel liberates you from having to seek the approval of others. And at the same time, it liberates you from having to strive for the approval of God. You already have the tender affection of his eternal love. Do you hear? You already have the tender affection of his eternal love. What more do you need? What more do you need? There's nothing more. This is why the one true gospel is truly amazingly good news. Let me pray for us and then we'll have a moment to respond. Father, we thank you this morning through your servant, Paul, that you speak words of truth, words of life, words of liberation. Lord, if we have, if we have begun to fall prey to a distortion of the gospel in our own heart, we've begun to believe that there's something we have to do to add to what your son has done for us so that you might love us. God, let Paul's direct and shaking words wake us up this morning. Lord, help us this morning today for the first time, the first time in a long time to see the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel. Lord, help us in whatever miraculous way you know needs to be done in each heart here. Help us this morning through repentance and faith in Christ to build our life upon the only sure foundation. Lord, we ask this, that you would be glorified, that sinners, sinners like myself, Lord, that we would be saved. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.